Early in the 21st century, the American economy and economies in many other rich countries crossed a key threshold. For the first time, they began to invest more in intangible assets like design, branding, R&D, and software than intangible assets like machinery and buildings. And because intangible investments behave differently than tangible ones, an economy dominated by them may behave differently as well. To explore how we should deal with this fundamental change, I'm delighted to be joined by Stian Westlake. Stian is a senior fellow at Nesta, the UK's National Foundation for Innovation. He was also a policy advisor to the UK Minister of Science, Research, and Innovation. Stian is also the co-author of 2017's Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy, which he wrote alongside Jonathan Haskell to explore what the intangible economy really is. He also recently co-wrote a great memo with Sam Bowman titled Reviving Economic Thinking on the Right, which outlines the economic policies that center-right policymakers should pursue in this new economy. Stian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I've been meaning to chat with you uh, for some time about capitalism uh, without capital with uh, co-author Jonathan Haskell, a uh, great, great book, which I'm, we want to talk about. But then I ran across a, a brief policy memo on the UK economy that you co-authored called Reviving Economic Thinking on the Right. And this is the part that really got me uh, excited. Quote, the right should be unashamed of the fact that it wants to make Britain boom again, to create good jobs, to enrich people and the places they live, and to give them the freedom and opportunity to lead better lives. Informed by the principles we have identified, the importance of productivity growth, agglomeration effects, intangible capital, and Britain's persistently low levels of investment, the policies we set up below are planned for creating prosperity in the UK. Now, this is about the UK, but it seems to me that a good chunk of that mission statement, as well as the paper in general, could easily apply to the American economy, where productivity and economic growth have been stuck at historically uh, low levels. And for some time, I've also been sort of writing about the need to sort of update the economic thinking on the right uh, from, I think, President, this was meant as, a, as I think as a pretty sarcastic joke by President Obama, but there's some truth in it where too, much, too often on the right, the policy idea was, and I quote President Obama, feel the cold coming on, take two tax cuts, roll back some regulation, and call <laughs> us in the morning. Uh, but instead of updating and expanding the agenda, what happened on the right, we sort of turned backwards to focus on protectionism and sort of economic nostalgia for the economy of the 50s and 60s. But a key thesis of capitalism without capital, which certainly informs your policy memo, is that there's been a fundamental change in the nature of advanced economies in recent decades. Uh, so what, let's start talking a bit about that fundamental change, uh, which you write about uh, in the Capitalism Without Capital, the Rise of the Intangible Economy. So this big change that's been going on in the economies of the rich world is about the nature of capital, the nature of what businesses invest in. Once upon a time, what businesses invested in was mostly physical things, machines, factory buildings, vehicles, computer hardware, things that if you hit it with your foot, you would stub your toe. And that's changed. That's been gradually changing for at least 40 years. And each year, gradually, businesses invest less in that physical stuff and more in what we would call intangible assets, things that, like physical capital, have a long-term value, but which are immaterial, things like research and development, things like designs, things like organizational capability, or even brands and artistic originals. Marketing, that kind of thing? Things oh, like right. marketing as well. Right. And 
the reason why we think this is a significant change is that these intangible assets, from an economic point of view, behave differently to tangible capital. We talk in our book about the four S's, which are these kind of four characteristics. I want to read those four S's. They are, they are extraordinarily important. But was this stuff? how is this stuff counted in GDP, and has that changed at all? The way this stuff is counted has changed. This has been a big, um, a, a big push by academics and national statisticians over the last 20 years to record this stuff better. So people like Carol Corrado from the conference board here in the US really led the charge on this, gradually introducing things like R&D, better measures of software, better measures of things like artistic originals. So increasingly, probably about half of this stuff is now in GDP. So, so previously, did software not get counted? Or it, was a, it wasn't counted as an investment? It, was it wasn't counted as an investment. Right. So it was expense. So it was treated like your paperclip bill if right, you're a right. business. Um, but obviously, what you and I know is if a business invests a lot in proprietary software that creates a lot of value for the business in the long term, that is an asset in the same way that having a machine or having a factory. And is an asset. but so far, generally in advanced economies, uh, they don't count things like brand, brands, and, yeah. and and you know what? To a certain extent, maybe some of this stuff is impossible to count or to include. And if you talk to someone like Baruch Lev at New York University, he would say that when you look at company accounts, you can never really count this stuff. So in a sense, corporate accounting is kind of drifting further and further away from business realities in a way that you probably can't fix. And and so when was like the key point where we where we saw uh, intangible investment overtake physical investment? Because you certainly to this day still hear mo- a lot more about what well, business needs to invest more, get more better machines in people's hands and buildings. And that it's a lot yeah. of focus still seems to be on that. So when did that handover take place? The crossover when businesses in places like the US and the UK started to invest more in intangibles and tangibles was about the middle of the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s. So somewhere actually probably just before the global financial crisis. Right. So it's profoundly like weird, I think, at least in the United States, I won't speak for Great Britain, the United States, that so much of the economic conversation is sort of, even though we've, we're sort of on the other side of that crossover, seems again be focusing on, you know, on, on somehow restoring that economy of coal and steel and steel mills, you know, from the from the 50s and 60s. So I think there's kind of a good reason for that and a bad reason. The good reason is that, you know, things like advanced manufacturing, things like advanced mineral extraction, these are good for the economy. Right. They create good jobs. They create value added. That stuff is not made totally irrelevant by the intangible mm-hmm. economy. And indeed, an advanced manufacturing business uses a lot of intangibles as well as the factories. Sure. That's the good reason. But there's a bad reason too, which is kind of what you might call policy nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And sometimes politicians, understandably, politicians like to tell stories. A story that voters and the pundits often recognize is a story about the past, a story about what the economy was like in the days when productivity growth was high, wage growth was high, nuclear families were abundant. And you really have to ask yourself the question, Will harking back to the mode of production in those days get us the economic benefits that used to obtain then? Or is this kind of more of a cargo cult? Right. right. Thank you for throwing cargo cult in there. Uh, (laughs) uh, That that what we saw in those decades in the 50s, 60s, there were sort of some unique one-off factors that would seem to be very hard um, to repeat. Not to mention you have economies both in the U.S. and then globally sort of recovering from World War II. 
That's absolutely right. So I think generally, particularly because this kind of dominant mode of production has changed because these intangibles are more important, um, you can't wind the clock back in the same way. All right. So I, before I rudely interrupted you, you were going to get into a little bit about <laughs> some key aspects uh, of intangibles. Um, one is, uh, if I can sort of preempt you there, is that they're, they're, they're scalable. Well, what does that mean? They're highly scalable. So if get big or something, I know. If you've, got, if you've got a really valuable intangible asset, something like, say, the Uber algorithms that make the Uber application work, a little bit of valuable intangibles can go a long way. So if you think about the Uber app, I use it in London, I come to Washington, D.C., I use it, I go to Budapest in Hungary, I use it. It's the same algorithm. Now, contrast that with a tangible investment like a factory. If you've got a factory, you have a limit to how much you can produce from that factory before you need to invest in a new production line or even a new factory building. And that's the scalability about intangibles. And it means that if you own a really valuable one, that can be scaled across often an arbitrarily large business. So um, so it shouldn't be surprising, uh, I guess, one, that we have these very big sorts of technology companies where intangible investments are at the core of what they do. I suppose also it shouldn't surprise us the ability for companies that seem to have, you know, again, not much physical equipment and really not many employees all of a sudden can get very, very big, um, uh, you know, these startups. I, I, I was trying to dig up the quote where, you know, in, in, in the past, you, it would, you know, you could, you could take, it would take, you know, 500 employees, you know, you know five years to, to generate sales of like $5 million, and now you can have five employees you know, generate sales of $500 million fairly, you know, fairly quickly. That's absolutely true. And kind of the Silicon Valley dream, the dream of every venture capital investor or startup founder is founded on the, the scalability of those intangible assets. Uh, um, sunk cost. That's another part of it. That seems like a very, very complicated economic concept. How does it apply to uh, intangibles? So the idea of a sunk cost is if a business has an investment that's, that's intangible, if the business fails for some reason, that investment is what economists would call sunk. It's not very much use to someone else who kind of buys the assets of the business or to, say, a creditor who takes right. the assets. It's not like a bunch of uh, you know, bulldozers or forklifts uh, that, you could, that you could somehow sell or the property itself or the, or the building, the structure, and you could recoup some of that. Totally right. So to take an example, um, those of you, you with long memories may remember Nokia, the mobile phone giant. Nokia had a bunch of intangible assets. They had operating systems and so forth. They also had a vast research and development campus in Helsinki in Finland. That research and development campus, a tangible asset, as soon as Nokia got into trouble, was immediately sold and, you know, was full of tenants and it's now a kind of thriving place. So that wasn't a sunk cost. But its operating system, it was bought by Microsoft for about $5 billion. But within 18 months, Microsoft realized it was worthless and took the entire cost of that six billion dollar charge as a write-off and i guess that's what we mean by intangibles being a sunk cost um another another uh, aspect as we sort of go through it here is the uh, the synergy or the spillovers uh something you, you get with intangible capital you don't get with sort of you know traditional capital and that which which means it's helpful that these businesses that there's a lot of these businesses and they're close together like Silicon Valley. That's exactly right. So the spillovers and the synergies have a similarity in the sense that these assets, firstly, the synergies, they're very good when you combine them together. So a product like the iPhone is based on the synergies of lots of intangibles, like the design, like the structure of the app store, like the R&D of the product. The spillovers, on the other hand, means that 
very often, if you as a business invest in an intangible, you can't be sure that your business, rather than a competitor or someone totally different, will get the benefit. And the classic example here is how Xerox Park developed a lot of the technology behind WYSIWYG and graphical user interfaces, and Microsoft and Apple then commercialized it. So in a way, having businesses be able, you know, having employees transfer between businesses and start businesses that maybe they're, they're using some of the, the know-how they gathered someplace else. Like, so that's important for the tangible economy to have those kinds of hubs. And every, listen, every, every mayor, every governor, um, every president of a country would love to create these sorts of tech hubs. And, and, and for good reasons, what you're saying, because those hubs are really important if you want to have a productive economy going forward. That's exactly right. And because the intangibles are becoming more important, those hubs, those kind of so-called agglomeration effects, we believe are getting more important, which creates a big challenge. If you are a mayor or a, a president of a left-behind place, um, your disadvantage is growing and growing. So, so and the other side of that, which you also write about, is... Uh, is that there's sort of a, a, a natural inequality that that generates, that you're going to have regions, but even companies, certain companies do very, very well, uh, and other companies fall behind. That's exactly what we're sort of seeing in the economy, where it seems to be there's been a lot of concern, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, about companies not investing enough. But that's, that's really just some companies. Some companies are investing a lot, and some companies' employees uh, are doing fantastic. And indeed, when we talk about inequality to a great extent, we're not talking the difference between the CEO at a company and some of the lower paid employees. You're talking about all the employees at one company, which is doing well, doing so much better than all the employees at another company that's not doing well. That's sort of the inequality problem. That's exactly right. And I think some of the research we've seen in recent years using both US data and Scandinavian data where this where, where they have very good data sources shows that that, is, that accounts for the majority, something like 75 or 80% of the increase in income inequality that we're seeing. Um, and we think that's really driven by this 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 gulf in intangibles. All right. So that's sort of the broad outlook of what this means. Now let's take it and sort of look at some uh, some of the key issues. Uh, I read a lot about the about the uh, you know, the tax cuts we had in the United States, the Trump tax cuts, and one thing they were meant to boost uh, was business investment. Business investment has been weak for a number of years, and indeed, despite having these tax cuts, including a big corporate tax rate, business investment is still weak. Does that does your what does your research tell us about that? I mean, is the, is there something else going on with the business investment um, that we that perhaps just cutting the corporate tax rate isn't going to fix? So we think there is. In this new world of intangibles, a lot of investments, because they have these characters of spillovers and synergy, um, it's really worth making these kind of investments if you're Google, if you've already got valuable intangibles, if you can take advantage of the scale. But if you're a less favored firm, if you're a smaller firm, if you can't benefit from from those, the winner-takes-all effect will in fact discourage you from making those kind of investments. So if you think about, well, what does that mean? It means that there's a stronger case for greater incentives to do things like Mm R&D. There's a stronger case for looking really carefully at competition policy and trying to make sure that wherever possible, um, we create a dynamic market, a market where an attacker firm, a small Mm -hmm. firm, can scale rapidly and isn't going to be crushed by by, by incumbents. So so part part of the issue then is that if you're... Um, if you're at a, a firm that's already doing well and you have lots of smart people, lots of PhDs, um, you have you know the best people from you know the best business schools. I don't know. You you can take advantage of the latest sort of you know advances in robotics or artificial intelligence rather quickly. Yeah. Other companies they may eventually catch up, but it may take a while, or they may feel like you know we can go buy this stuff. 
but we're you know we're never we're never going to get a very good return. We just don't know how to use it well in our business, and so therefore they won't they won't make those investments. And if those investments are becoming ever more power more yeah. stronger or important, then maybe we shouldn't shouldn't be surprised that right now we're not seeing an explosion in business investment just because of a tax cut. That's exactly right, and we think this helps explain this kind of effect people talk about secular stagnation, right. where you have this combination of what seems like a fantastic time for technology, a time where some companies seem to be posting incredible results. The ROI that a company like Google is generating is very high, but the aggregate levels of investment are low. We think that bifurcation helps explain that. Uh, an alternate explanation has been the problem is with corporate governance. That you have the, you have these CEOs under a lot of pressure from shareholders, to, you know, to to generate good returns over the next quarter or two, and because of that kind of short term mentality, because of quote unquote shareholder capitalism, these companies just aren't investing. How much merit do you think is to that sort of alternate explanation, or, if any? So I spent a long time talking to CFOs and sell side analysts about this question over the last ten years, and. One of the things I think comes across is analysts are trying to work out which of those two categories a given company falls into. Are they in the category of a company that you can trust to make risky and tangible investments mm -hmm. because they will be able to internalize the benefits, they'll be able to take the spillovers and make mm -hmm. sure that their company benefits, or are they kind of in the also-ran category, mm -hmm. the category that can't benefit. And you see that when you see that if you've got a company that is seen as a growth prospect, um, they often have remarkable leeway from a corporate governance point of view to make investments. You know, this is a constant argument between CFOs and analysts of companies like Google or Tesla more notoriously. Um, but when you convince analysts that you're in that category, um, a lot of these short-termism, these criticisms of short-termism don't apply, and you see companies making big long-term investments. But in some senses, analysts are responding quite logically to this new economic reality. So um, if an analyst or investor thinks you're the kind of com uh, company which has not in the past shown a great ability to incorporate either you know, acquisitions or, 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 or new kinds of um, intangible investments or investments overall, then, then they're going to give you a short leash. They're going to say, well, pe perhaps, big, perhaps yeah. you should be focusing more on cutting um, cutting payroll, becoming more efficient, or, or doing yeah. some other things. Focusing on your core business yeah. and giving money back to shareholders. Yeah, that's it. Because that, that you can't be trusted to do yeah. it. So, so the, it's almost like we've kind of confused the issue that there's not just there's not just corporate America not investing. Some parts, you know, some parts, and also the parts which have seen, which, you know, cuts against this argument, seem to be the parts of the, uh, corporate America where there's more concentration, you know, these big technology companies, some parts are, some parts aren't. So I think that's correct. I think the bigger problem is not with public equity, with, with, with the stock market, but with debt markets, which obviously are the source of most external finance for most businesses. And this comes back to the fact that these intangibles represent sunk costs. If you're an equity holder and, your and the company you've invested in goes bust, you get nothing. So you don't care whether the investments are sunk costs or not. You have no recourse. If you're a lender, if you're a bondholder or a bank, you care about you know you care about what you get in the case of business failure, and this has been called by people like Stephen Chiketti the curse of collateral in an intangible economy because these intangible assets don't represent collateral. Um, if we depend mostly on debt finance for our economy, um, then you know what Keynes called the capital development of the economy will be ill-served. Right, right. Um, 
All right. So, um, so much of what we've just discussed, you know, really informs um, sort of your uh, your your, pol- your policy memo. So let's just uh, we'll just go through a, a, a bit of it. Sure. Uh, one of the uh, areas you you were talking about in this is housing, and that fits very nicely into what you were just saying because you we because in uh, capitalism, multi capital, we talk about the importance of sort of tech hubs which do very very well, and therefore if they do very very well. Um, you know, their property values are going to go up a lot more than places that don't do well. And therefore, the people who live there, you're going to have a big jump in wealth inequality to a great deal. This also, I think, as you mentioned, explains uh, sort of the, the growing disparity in wealth that has been a, a, a big issue. So um, talk a little bit about what you would like to do for housing. Now, granted, uh, the, the policies you recommended <laughs> for Great Britain, not the United States, but generally, what should policymakers think about uh, if they're thinking about housing and also the importance of making sure we have regions which uh, have these sorts of synergies and spillovers. So if you look at places around the world where the intangible economy is thriving, um, these tend to be dynamic cities or dynamic suburbs like Silicon Valley. Um, but in all of these cases, in all of these places, we've seen skyrocketing property prices. And uh, as people like Enrico Moretti points out, this is bad for the development of the the knowledge economy and the intangible economy. It's also really bad for ordinary working people's wages because when the housing market works well, you can move from a poor place to a better off place and earn a high salary, even if you're not in a kind of glamorous high-tech job. You'll earn more making coffee or cutting hair or being a builder or whatever. but if all of that is eaten up by your rent or by your housing costs, your mortgage, then there's no benefit and, uh, and, and the economy doesn't thrive from that point of view. So the thing that we've been recommending is um, planning, deregulation, making it easier to build houses so that more people can take advantage of the benefits of the intangible economy and the intangible economy right. itself. Can that policy recommendation is a um, sort of a beautiful elegant, obvious thing. It's very easy to understand sort of the, you know, that's like basic supply and demand. The politics, very hard in this country. Uh, uh, I don't know if they're any easier in Great, so Great Britain. You're, 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 to- you're totally right. And this is where the, this is where the detail really matters. Right. So what we proposed in um, the report that we did um, was a way of potentially getting around the political mm-hmm. objection to deregulating planning. And this was what we called street votes mm-hmm. or is sometimes called street by street zoning. Mm-hmm. So the idea is at the moment, zoning decisions are decided on a city level or a neighborhood level or even in the UK often at a national government Mm. level. And in those cases, if you say to people, do you want to make it easier to build housing, generally people say no. They don't trust the government on these kind of issues. They value green space. They value kind of low density. Mm. But a way around this is to say, let's push this decision downwards as much as we can. Let's make it not done at a national level or a city level, but let's give people the right to make these decisions at a street level or at a neighborhood level. Now, what that means, if you get a majority of people on the street wanting to make it easier to densify the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. to build more housing within, within limits, it can happen. You change the zoning. And many, many places will no doubt decide we don't want to do this. But the fact is some places will decide to do this. And 
this if you now, now this is literally just the opposite I think of the theory in the United States, <laughs> yeah. which is you can't trust you can't trust cities, you can't trust neighborhoods. We need to push this up, you know, up yeah. the ladder and have you know for, on a state level have governors decide because you know they're not, because they they can look at, at a whole state like California. So it's very so I'm, so it's really a a very different. So I mean, will neighborhoods decide that? Because it just seems very you know counterintuitive. To well, me. here's the incentive. If you, if you live on a street, if you're a property owner mm-hmm. on a street that chooses to densify, that immediately means your property that you own becomes considerably more valuable. Maybe twice as the, it will increase in price by threefold or fourfold or, or even more. If you're talking, for example, as we are in the book, about some areas of London that are very dense at the moment but are very well served by public transport, you're offering a potentially enormous windfall to property owners here. Now, as you say, there will be some neighborhoods where people say, I don't want to be a millionaire. I just want to keep my street as it is. Right. But you don't want to hurt, quote unquote, the character of the neighborhood. But, you know, there are a lot of streets in a city like London or a city like San Francisco. And you don't need many streets to change their mind on this issue to cause a very significant increase in density. Um, the idea of pushing this, this, this decision up as a Brit, I guess I'm skeptical because we make these decisions at a national level right. and the, the the NIMBYs, as it were, the special interest groups, find they can operate more effectively at a national level than they can at a local level. Um, uh, we mentioned taxes earlier. So what is so what is a so what should the tax code look like? Like I said, we had this big uh, uh, tax reform in the United States, you know, we cut corporate tax rates. And we try to encourage more uh, long-term investment by through expensing provisions. That, that some of that is a good idea. Yeah. So we in the, our pamphlet are big fans of the full expensing proposals that have gone on in the UK. And this kind of cuts slightly against the intangible message because in the UK, the a lot of that's code, going to be in the stuff. The tax code is actually pretty favourable to intangible yeah. investment in the UK because pretty much all of that can be treated as 100% expense right. in the year it's incurred. Um, we have a strange situation in the UK where for the last decade or so, we've disfavoured tangible capital investment because we used to give capital allowances for it. We got rid of a lot of those allowances. So in a sense, what we're proposing is 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 that the UK should emulate the US's full expensing policies. Um, to other big... Uh, 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 sort of policy areas. One, infrastructure. Again, uh, sort of different challenges um, in the United Kingdom. But would you would you recommend to an American policymaker that we should build a lot of high speed rail in this country? Because a lot of infrastructure ends up being that people are bored by you know fixing roads and fixing bridges. But high speed rail hyperloops, very exciting. So <laughs> so what would be the what do you think about any of that stuff, at least for the United States? I think, I mean, the key goal with building infrastructure mm-hmm. comes back to this idea of agglomerations. Right. In an intangible economy, you want to create big areas where people can travel for right. work. Um, now, in some cases, you may achieve that through high-speed rail. But much more important is good quality local transport that allows people to get from their home to their jobs. Um, buses. Buses. We love buses. We are big fans of buses. And... Um, I guess part of the question about buses is how do you make sure... But would these be buses that run underground in vacuum tubes? (laughs) Because that's what we get very excited about that. So certainly you're not talking about buses on roads. That that uh, that's, that's, that's I thought this was like new thinking. This is the old thinking. Don't they have to be underground? <laughs> I'm a, I'm a I'm a bigger admirer of Elon Musk. I'm always excited by hyperloops. But I think the question of if you're talking about buses, how do you make a bus something that is reliable and people want to commute on? It's partly about making sure you have more dedicated bus routes. 
It's partly about making sure you have reliable buses so you're not sitting there thinking, oh, no, I've missed my bus. I've got to wait 17 minutes and I'm going to be late for my job. Um, it's kind of, it is about making buses more like trains or, for that matter, more like Hyperloops. Mm-hmm. Uh, um what I thought interesting uh, in your, the section about public research funding is that you like some things we do in this country. Maybe we should be spending more, but things like uh, DARPA, mm-hmm. uh, where, you, where you have these sort of quasi-independent agencies uh, who are trying to do cutting-edge uh, cutting research. Do you, think, do you like that idea better than like these grand challenge kinds of competitions where you have some big goal and companies like even, – even, even though DARPA has used some of those, yeah. uh, some of those challenges. So, like, so how, how, what's, this, what's your idea about how to do sort of investment – Uh, public research investment in an efficient, productive way. So what I like about organizations like DARPA is that because they are focused on getting stuff done, they bridge the gap nicely between the more academic side of research and more applied research. I think that is a huge advantage. Um, I am more skeptical of what some people call mission-oriented innovation, these kind of grand challenges. Um, I think it can be a useful a useful kind of red herring, a useful way of crowding people in. I guess what I'm more skeptical about is that government or other kind of great figures can effectively say, right, the goal is going to be, the goal is going to be X, and that will generate. But it seems like research. a lot of um, what we're seeing, sort of, with the environment, climate change, seems to be about just that: setting some big goal, some big mission-oriented that we're going to be, you know, not generate any carbon emissions in a particular year. And that seems to be driving a lot of the thinking, I think, at least uh, on the left, since on the right, we don't think about it at all. But on the left, <laughs> in this country, uh, it's that kind of mission-oriented thinking, like, we need, like, this needs to be a new Manhattan project, or it needs to be another Apollo mission. Like, that's the way to deal with climate change. It's kind of interesting. When we look at some of the examples of mission-oriented innovation that are often used to justify this kind of Green New Deal-style innovation, people often talk about some of the historical DARPA innovation. So, you know, the development of the internet, for example. But it's kind of interesting because if you look at the history of the IPTO, the DARPA programs that developed these breakthrough computer technologies, they were kind of the opposite of these highly politicized, high-profile grand challenges. They were, as far as I could see, a bunch of very kind of strange, eccentric guys being allowed to do things that the public in the late 1960s would never have given license. If you'd, if you'd asked the public what they wanted in the late 1960s from their innovation system, they would have presumably said something like Nixon's war for cancer, which right. was a failure, right. rather than we want some guys to create an internet so that I can use Tinder or something like this. Right. This, was, this was a totally oblique, serendipitous discovery. And even the government funding was a, kind of, was, it was a very sort of decentralized, pushing the money out there to all of the, where companies would take advantage. But it wasn't a very centrally commanded, prescriptive kind of uh, Exactly. Thing. So it was mission-oriented to the extent that there was a great demand to make this stuff pl- practically applicable, which is, I think, the good thing about organizations like DARPA. But I guess what it wasn't was the kind of, let's get a bunch of very high-level politicians around a table and get them to agree a target. Now, listen, these kind of podcasts, usually when you're at the end, we know we, we go very light questions, like, what books have you been reading? No, that's not what we're going to do. All right. <laughs> you mentioned this very briefly. You mentioned secular stagnation earlier, yeah. um, where we have this weird situation where um, you have very, very low interest rate rates, but we don't. We also have very low business investment. Productivity is weak. Um, uh, we talked about it uh, a little bit, how that works with the intangible economy. So if you're worried about secular stagnation and it's continued low business investment, low productivity – are the sort of the policy recommendations? Are those what we need to do? Are there any additional things? Those are really important, but.
But I think the number one problem behind circular stagnation mm -hmm. is the fact that when you look at investment in intangibles, for the last 10 years, something strange has happened. This long-term increase in intangible investment has, for the last 10 years, started to slow down. And what's really interesting about that is if you look about where the secular well, stagnation... a very important fact. If you, it, it is. And we talk about it in our book, but it's kind of we've, when we wrote the book a couple of years ago, we were just still checking the data. Um, now it looks like it's pretty a pretty clear trend. And how can this that is, be? This is more important. Supposed to be more important than ever. I would, think, is, I would think it'd be skyrocketing. Well, right? you would you would think so, but it's. I guess the first thing is that where the secular stagnation problem is really showing up is in total factor productivity, right. the kind of measure of innovation in mm -hmm. the economy, and that's exactly what you would expect to fall away if intangible investment was falling away because of the spillovers. Um, and. I would speculate, and this is the subject of my and Jonathan Haskell's next book that we're working ah, on at the good. moment. We, we allowed you to push the push ah. your product. <laughs> I, would, it. I, would, I would speculate that this is about, we're kind of running up to the limits of what our current institutions allow us to do when it comes to intangibles. We talked earlier about the problems of things like debt financing, mm -hmm. the problems of competition policy. And I think this means that if we really want to solve the secular stagnation problem, we need to up the ante on making sure we've got the right policies in place. Any, so any, any sneak preview on what, what those policies be, if they're any different than what we just talked about. No, the, uh, some of those are absolutely to the yeah. point, clusters, planning, mm -hmm. um, getting the right financial institutions, and getting the right kind of competition policy. I think those are, those are, those are, are, those are you, on our are you, wish are, list. Are you, do you think, like, are you worried that these big tech companies, even though they're doing all this innovating and spending on R&D, at least in this country, do you, do you think that, that they're a problem? You know, Google and Amazon, even though they're investing a lot? I'm a big fan of, of, of tech platforms. I think what they do is they make the job of being a regulator, for example, of competition, much harder. They make it less rules-based and more about applying ad hoc judgment, which is really tough because we spent a long time, and you know the AEI and others right. were, were kind of foot soldiers in this war. We've spent a long time going from a judgment-based way of regulating to a rules-based form of regulating with kind of you know RPI plus X right, right, ways right. of pricing and that kind of thing. Um, but in this new kind of platform-based economy, and I certainly found this working in my government brief on things like intellectual property and copyright policy, you actually find that you're judging many more one-off debates between, for example, Google and YouTube and rights holders for music or sports rights. And that creates a really big challenge. It creates a challenge of governance because it means that government's got to be really ethical and honest. It creates a political problem because it's much harder to have depoliticized technocratic regulators if you're expecting them to exercise the wisdom of Solomon every every few weeks. Indeed, I think that, I think that one concern is you know in this country where you you are going to have you know the FTC and the Department of Justice looking at these companies at the same time as you have the President of the United States tweeting attacks on these companies saying you know break them up break them up or you know that that sort of thing exactly. that kind of depoliticized judgment seems especially difficult well in many countries political norms are being undermined just at a time when from an economic point of view we need them to be really strong i wish i had a solution to that <laughs> other than norms are good but. well we'll we'll be looking forward to that book and we'll have you on then uh Stephen Westlake thanks for coming on the podcast thank you